As we wrap up this series, and a little child shall lead them, our scripture for this morning is from Psalm 78. Psalm 78, 1 through 7. The psalmist writes, My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our ancestors to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep his commands. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So normally, when I begin a sermon, after we've read the text or, or prior to reading the text, I want to offer some, and, and you know, a lot of pastors will do this, to offer some story, some something that, that draws us in, something that grabs our attention or, or hooks us or offers some question, some tension, something for us to wrestle with that then invites us into what God has to say in, in His Word. But, but this morning, I just feel like I'm just going to tell you where we're going to go, and then we're just going to go there. We're going to talk about the things that have uh, happened in Texas this week, and we're going to talk about just kind of the state of the world in which we live right now, in, in particular our, our own country. And, and I'm going to talk about the roller coaster that I've been on this week uh, as, as the, the proud parent of a high school graduate and one who has finished eighth grade and is going to high school next year. I mean, all, for me, all of the feelings are at the very surface. So there might be tears. I'm just going to confess that to you. And then when I, I want us to consider and, and to to wrestle with where we've been in the series and then where we land this morning. Because this morning, we're going we're gonna to take a bit of a different approach than we've taken each Sunday. And that is we're going to be challenged with the legacy that we are leaving for the generations that follow. And if you are a parent, then the, the, uh, like the audience is a little bit more obvious. It's your children. But if you're not a parent, then, then any generation that follows you will be impacted by the way that you live your life in God's kingdom. Has the potential to be impacted in in eternal ways in the way that you live your life. So this is not just a message for parents to consider the legacy that they are leaving, but for all of us who will have generations that follow us, for us as a church who will have generations that follow us. So we're going to wrestle with that, and then I'm going to read a prayer that I I believe really just kind of wraps up um, both the tension that we find ourselves in and then the hope that we have uh, in Christ. Amen? Sound good? Okay. Whether it sounds good or not, that's what we're going to do. Unless the Holy Spirit hijacks that, and then we're just going to hang on. So over the course of, of, of these weeks, this series that we've been in, And a Little Child Shall Lead Them, that, that comes from um, the prophet uh, Isaiah in, in foretelling the coming of Christ and who Christ would be for this world and the way that this kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate would look very different than the kingdoms of the world. That's where this, this idea comes from. But then the 
the, the other piece to that for us as a church, and you've heard me say this, and if you're new here, I hope you hear this because it is one of the things that, we, that, that is very significant and very important to us. One of our values as a church is next generation now. And, and I, I hope that you could recite what is behind that if you've heard it enough times, but I'm, gonna, I'm just going to recite it for you. The idea is that we don't have to wait for the next generation to grow up in order for them to lead us. And that tends to be how the world operates, right? If, if you know, we just need the next generation to grow up and begin to take some responsibility and begin to lead us. No, we believe as a church that if we are paying attention, we see that the next generation is already leading us in what it looks like to love those around them and what it looks like to have hearts that are compassionate and what it looks like to think of others and what it looks like to follow Jesus well. The next generation is already doing that. And yet, oftentimes it's on us because we're not paying attention. We are so caught up in our own ideas and our own uh, mess, so focused on our own lives that we're not seeing that the next generation is already leading us. Part of this comes from Matthew chapter 18, beginning with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. This is not the answer that the disciples were looking for when they came and asked Jesus this question. They were hoping that he would point to one of them as being the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, right? John, the beloved disciple, as he speaks of himself in his gospel account, or or perhaps um, the brothers, or perhaps, you know, Peter, who was willing to run through a wall or cut off, you know, the ear of, of a servant who came in the party to arrest Jesus, perhaps they were, you know, desired to hear their name called when asked that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And yet Jesus does the unthinkable and calls a child into their midst and says, this is the greatest. The innocence, the humility, the understanding of all the ways that they can't. How many times have we as adults or you as a parent or even you yourself, can you remember a time in your life when you were younger and you uttered these words, I, I can't. I can't do that. And, and our response tends to be, can't, never could, rather than really listening and paying attention why don't you think you can do that? Why can't you do that? Let me, let me hear what it is that you're wrestling with. But, but underneath even that is, is a humility, is an understanding of weakness, coming to terms with inability. And yet Jesus, one of the things that he's offering up here is that that is the key to entrance into his kingdom. It's not about working your place into God's favor. It's not some merit of yours that earns you a seat at the table. It is only the merit of Jesus that earns you a seat at the table. It's not what you can offer him. It is recognizing that everything that has been offered to you has been offered free of cost, and you are invited then to respond with all that you have. Because there's no greater gift that you could be given. And it begins with our recognition of all the ways that we can't, of all of our inadequacies, 
all of our insufficiency. And recognizing that in Jesus there is one who is wholly sufficient, completely adequate, who is more than enough. So we've, we've looked at what does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to take on that mentality that we have in Christ an adoption made possible, not because we've earned anything, not because we've done something to earn God's favor, but because of who Jesus is and because God loves us. And that we can look at God as our heavenly father, that even if our reflection, our own you know, biological or earthly fathers are, are not a great example of what love looks like, that through Christ in God, we are invited to be called his children. So what does it mean to take on that identity as a child of God? What does it mean then to grow as a child of God? What does it look like to grow? Growth is going to just happen inherently, but what does it mean to to grow into that identity as a child of God? Because we live in a world that's going to work, uh, work against that, to come against that every single day to convince you that you are not a child of God, that you are not worthy to be called a child of God, that if God really knew who you were, That if God really knew the things that you thought, if God really knew the things that you did behind closed doors or in the dark or when no one's looking, then there is no way that God would want you as a child of God, to which we have the opportunity to respond. Have you read the end of Romans chapter 8? Because what Paul tells me there is that there is nothing that I can do that places me outside of the reach of God's grace. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, nor things in the past can come against or come between the love that God has for me as displayed in Christ? What does it mean to grow in that truth and to take on that identity? And then what does it mean to recognize that for all of us who would be children of God, there is a calling on our lives. There is an opportunity to be participants in what God is doing in this world. And and that's really a lot of what we're going to wrestle with this morning. What does your participation in the kingdom look like and how is it affecting the lives of those who would come behind you? And finally, what does it mean? We looked at 1 Timothy last week. What what does it look like to have an authentic faith? A faith that owns, takes ownership of our weakness and seeks to say yes to God's grace and seeks to continue to live into that every day to have a faith that is authentic, to realize that it's not about checking the boxes of showing up at church every Sunday, that it's not about checking the boxes of just having a quiet time or bowing your head to give thanks for a meal, but it's about recognizing that in Christ there is an identity that you are invited to have, that in Christ there is a life that you are invited into that is a full life, a life with meaning and a life with purpose, a life that is not at all meant to be defined by how much you can acquire or how much you possess. And if God chooses to bless you with wealth and possession, then it's about how you use that to affect the lives of those around you. What does it mean to have a faith that is authentic, that is a real reflection of Jesus? So this morning, as we wrap up this series and and as we prepare to celebrate Pentecost next week and the birth of the church some 2,000 years ago, rather than looking at the examples of children, rather than looking at the ways that children are already living into these things that that I've just mentioned We're going to look at the lives of children as a mirror to our own lives.
We're going to look at the lives of younger generations as a mirror to our own lives and and ask the question, what is the legacy that we are leaving behind that creates a space for them to live into who God is calling them to be? What is the legacy of your life? Because every single one of you in this room, every single person watching online, every single person that will hear this message because they download the podcast later this week, every single one of us will leave a legacy of some sort. None of us are exempt from that. Something about the way that you live your life will in some way, shape, or form impact the lives of those around you and who come after you. The question is, what is the legacy that you are leaving? This was brought, I just feel like I was brought face to face with this in so many ways this week. On, on Wednesday, uh, my, the oldest of our girls uh, had her eighth grade promotion. And we gathered in the gym at Hardin Park School, and we began the ceremony with a moment of silence. A moment of silence for the families of those who lost children, 19 children, and two educators, two teachers in Uvalde, Texas, the day before. And so, with every, like everyone else in there, I, I, I don't know, maybe other people bow their heads and close their eyes. That, that, was, that tends to be my response when there's a moment of silence. I want to be in that silence. And so I did that, and then the next thing I know, I'm weeping. And I did that a lot this week. And I picked my head up, and I, I looked at those eighth graders who were sitting there ready to be celebrated, who would go on to high school in the fall, and the, the sea of parents and, and family members who were behind us. And in that moment, I thought, there are 19 students who will not get to experience this. There are families of 19 students who will not get to celebrate promotion to a next grade. Who will not get to celebrate a high school graduation, which we had the opportunity to do on Friday. And listen, I, I, I'm not, my intention is not to drive us into a political debate over the accessibility of guns. But I don't care where you land on that debate. There is nothing about something like that that is a reflection of the kingdom of God. It is the result of this broken and sinful world in which we live. And we are left to wrestle with where is God when something like that happens? Where is the goodness of God? Where is the protection of God? And if you have asked these questions this week, you're in good company because a lot of people are asking those questions. Nineteen children don't have the opportunity to leave a legacy. Those families, for them... Life has been altered. It will look different from this point forward. And we, as the church and as people of God, find ourselves left with what, what, what are we to do? What is our response to be? And for those of you who are people who, who offer thoughts and prayers, I would encourage you to not stop doing that. 
Do not stop going to your knees on behalf of the innocent. Do not stop going to your knees on behalf of of those who are hurting. Do not stop going to your knees on behalf of the brokenness in this world. Do not stop going to your knees as a stand against the evil that happens and that is taking place every day in this world. Do not stop going to your knees on behalf of teachers and children. I, I saw so many memes flying around this week that that challenged and pushed back against the significance of thoughts and prayers. And I get that. I understand it. Because it feels like the question is, what are you, you're not, what are you doing really? First of all, we are creating space for the God of creation to inhabit and to speak and to inspire And to allow us to feel brokenness. We're creating space where we realize and recognize that what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, verse 18, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We're quieting the noise of this world long enough to realize that God is a God who is present in the midst of our suffering. But then we're also creating space in which God might just choose to use you might just choose to use his people, might just choose to use his church to move in response to such atrocities, to be a part of the transformation that we long to see take place in this world. And so I found myself living in this tension this week of such pride and such gratitude over what my kids have accomplished, but then at the same time just brokenhearted over those who would not get to experience such a thing with all of the questions that swirled around that. And, you know, when we planned this series months ago, this is, Psalm 78 is not even the original passage that we had, and yet as we gathered together as a a staff and, and, you know, prayed over this, even prior to the events of Tuesday, we just felt like, the passage that we had initially chosen was not the place that we needed to be and, and we're led to Psalm 78. And we're led to really wrestle with what is it? What is the legacy that we are leaving behind? What is it that we are living our lives for and how will that affect and impact the lives of those around us? This is among the Psalms that are considered <clears throat> for God's people, an historical psalm, or a psalm that tells a story of the history of God's people. And, and for all of the psalms that are historical psalms, they, they, they deal with a, a different reality of the history of, of God's people. And when we tend to hear that something is historical, or when we, when, when we tend to read something that is historical, our understanding of that and the way that, that we arrived at that is that there was research done, and there was a lot of research done, and that research was used to, to create and to put together this piece that gives us a window into this moment in time or this piece of our history. And, and for these psalmists, when they wrote these, what are known as the historical psalms, that's not what they, they weren't thinking, let me do some research in order to, uh, in order to be able to collect this information and, and present this psalm or this song in a way that faithfully reflects the story of God's people. 
And for them, it's not research, it's a retelling. It's a retelling of the reality of God's people. More importantly, it's a retelling of the reality of God's presence with God's people in a given moment in their history. It's the first place that we're challenged. For this psalmist, my people, hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us, things that have been passed down to us, things that have been handed from one generation to the next. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. The occasion for the writing of this song, it was this psalm, which, which was, it was believed was a song that was sung. You think of all of the songs that you remember from your childhood. And, and I, I can tell you that I, I, I wished, the number of times I said to myself, I wish I could remember the things I need to for this test like I remember some song that I heard when I was 10 years old and it, I cannot get it out of my head. My, my, our mother, uh, she, are you familiar with the term an earworm? Like if you, if you hear a song or there's a melody, then you're just like you are cursed with that thing until you hear something else. When she comes to stay at our house, she's, she, like the kids will start singing. We have a lot of singers in our house. And she's like, oh, no, I'm not going to be able to sleep tonight because that song now is going to just replay. As soon as I close my eyes and lay my head on the pillow, that song is there. The songs and the lyrics that we remember from songs that we heard decades ago, some of us, and yet we, we can't remember where we put our keys, right? Like, or, or we can't remember if we, you know, paid that bill or we can't, re- whatever. What, for me, it was like, I can't remember these things I need to remember for a test, and yet I can recall song lyrics from my childhood, A lot of these psalms were sung, and the reason that they were sung is because the the psalmist knew that with melody, they become a part of who you are. It's a way to retell the story that that not only draws people in, but gives them the opportunity then to, to make that story their own so that they can then pass it down. So the occasion for writing this psalm or this song was after the northern kingdom of Israel was overthrown by Assyria and taken into exile. And it was written as a warning for the southern kingdom of Israel. If you were to go on and and read, for example, uh, beyond where we stopped at verse 7 to verse 8, they would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. And then the psalmist goes on to mention uh, Ephraim, though armed with bows, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant and refused to live by His law. So it was written based on what happened to the northern kingdom. The northern people of Israel is written as a warning to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom out of which Jesus would ultimately come into this world. He don't forget the things of God. And the reason the psalmist is led to, to give such instruction, to share such words, is because the northern kingdom was taken into exile 
as a result of their rebellion and their disobedience before God. You see, there was a moment when they began to be enticed by the religious practices of other nations and the religious practices of other people. And they they looked at the idols that were worshipped by other people groups and thought, we know, we know what God has done for us. We can, we can trace that back to God's promise to Abraham, and we can, we can trace that back to God's faithfulness to Moses and bringing us out of captivity in Egypt and, and God bringing us into the promised land. And, you know, we had judges, and then God gave us kings, and we know all of that. But, and those, those people really look like they're having fun over there. And, and they serve this idol or this God that, you know, elevates pleasure as part of the practice or or this God that promises wealth or this idol that you know allows them encourages them to live a certain way or and celebrates a, a you know a certain thing about what it means to be human whatever it is and so they began to say well it's not that we don't believe in in our God the God of Israel it's not that we don't think we shouldn't live life in a way that's reflective of who this God of Israel is who our God is uh, our covenant God but but we also feel like maybe we just to be safe, we'll, we'll add to that the practices of some of these other religions. And we call that syncretism. At that time, it was just in, in the, the eyes of God. God you know, wasn't like, oh, you're practicing syncretism. That's trouble. In God's eyes, that was just rebellion. You hear this saying now, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And, and yet for us, we, we would say, yes, but Jesus, you know, plus a, a really solid retirement fund or, or Jesus, you know, plus um, a, a cushion on which to fall back or, or Jesus plus a really successful career or, or Jesus, you know, plus holding a really high position in this company or this organization. Jesus plus those things is also kind of nice. It's easy for us to look back at the history of the people of God and say, why would they ever, why would they ever worship other idols? Why would they find themselves you know, led astray? Don't they remember all that God did for them? Don't they remember that God did the impossible, bringing them out of the most powerful nation in the world at that time and giving them freedom? From their captivity, don't they remember that? And yet, if, if we are willing to, to turn the mirror on ourselves, I wonder how many of us have an idol in our lives that we worship. And, and maybe that doesn't mean you have a little place in your house where you have an actual idol that you bow down and worship, but you know, maybe your idol is your, is your social media presence. Maybe your idol is how other people think of you. Maybe your idol is success. Maybe your idol is wealth. Maybe your idol is, you know, chasing some dream that may not be the dream that God has for you. None of us are immune to the temptation of serving things that are not God. Louis Giglio likes to say that if, if you're not sure if there's an idol in your life, if you're willing to follow the, the path of the way that you spend your time and the way that you spend your treasure, if you're, if you're willing to follow the path of, of your affection, the way that you spend your resources, then usually at the end of that path will be a throne, and on that throne will be your idol or the God that you follow. 
And we can't really name that for each other. Sometimes it's more obvious than others, but that's really one of those things that we have to take before the Lord. And so what the psalmist is challenging God's people with is simply in remembering. And, and what, he's, what he's tasking the current generations with is in continuing to tell the story of God's faithfulness so that they don't forget, so that generations that come after them can make that a part of their own story, so that generations that come after them will then be able to tell those that follow them of the goodness of God, of the wonders of God, of all of the ways that God has been good and all of the ways that God has been faithful, even in the midst of times when there has been suffering, even in the midst of times when it seems that God has forgotten them, they can point to the ways that God has been faithful. And I've got to tell you, as I've watched my oldest graduate from high school this week, and in the eyes of my children, if I hold that up as the mirror to my own life, I feel like I'm never more aware of my shortcomings and my inadequacies than when I look at the the eyes of my children as the mirror for my own life and my own faithfulness as a follower of Jesus. I can think of a million different ways I would have done things differently or had a conversation differently, or paused long enough not to, not to snap, not to, not to react, but instead to take a moment and be able to respond in a situation in which I might have been frustrated. And the number of times that, you know, my kids have heard me snap at them, and it's no fault of their own, it's because of some stress I might be feeling that has nothing to do with them. And then I'm reminded of you know, what they need from me and what generations that would come after any of us need is not our perfection. It's not our ability to be perfect that's going to stir someone else's affection for Jesus. It's our ability to be authentic. It's our willingness to be honest about our shortcomings. It's our willingness to be honest about the ways that we have fallen short. The greatest story that I can tell of who Jesus is is a story that highlights the reality of the gospel in my life. It is the means by which God chose to bring salvation into this world, into the darkness. The God who put on flesh in the person of Jesus came, the light of the world, to a people not deserving of what God was going to offer them. Jesus came to a world that was broken and steeped in sin. Jesus came to the muck and mire of our own lives. Jesus came and invites us to be honest about our need for something greater than ourselves, invites us to be honest about our brokenness, invites us to be honest about our shortcomings. And invites us to say yes to Jesus. And in saying yes to Jesus, to take up the cause of being someone who works for light in the lives of other people. Being someone who who works to bring hope to the lives of others. Who comes alongside the hurting and yes, offers thoughts and prayers. But who is also willing to say to God, I will do whatever it is that you would ask me to do to be a part of light breaking into this dark world. To be a part of your kingdom becoming a reality in places where it seems there is only darkness and destruction. 
Because I believe that the enemy of this world does not have the final say because I've looked at the end of the book and I know how it ends. It ends with a Savior returning to make this world as it was meant to be all along, where we are made whole, where we are made pure, where we are able to live in relationship with our Creator because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. The thing that we can pass on to generations that would follow us is an authenticity that says, let me tell you about how Jesus met me in my brokenness. Let me tell you about the questions that I have that come as a result of something as tragic as 19 children and two teachers losing their lives. Let me tell you that that stirs up all kinds of questions about who God is. But let me tell you, I am willing to lean into that and I'm willing to seek the heart of God in prayer and I'm willing to be a part of making this world as it should be to see God's kingdom come on this earth. What is the legacy that you are leaving behind? It is a legacy, is it a legacy that says, yes, Jesus, but also Jesus plus this, or is it a legacy that says, you know what, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and that's what I have to give you. Maybe you're a person who's been blessed in which case it would be a legacy that says, hey, look at how we get to use all that God's given us for his kingdom. Maybe it's a legacy that says, yeah, I'm just trying to figure out how to eat. But let me tell you how good and faithful God is in the midst of that. Because he's filled a hunger that's deep within me that nothing else can touch. Each of us have in our lives someone whose legacy has impacted us in significant ways. And I think we discount and downplay the ways that we can be that for those who come after us. For me, it's my grandmother. And I've, I've shared this before. This is the Bible that I remember her sitting at her kitchen table with. It was a Bible that my mom gave me years ago for Christmas after my grandmother passed away. And it's full of her highlights and her underlines and her prayers. There are pages that are literally falling out because the amount of time that she spent seeking the heart of God, seeking to know Him. And at the end of this, in the back, there's a prayer that she wrote that my mom found tucked away in her dresser after she passed away. This is the typed copy, but I have a handwritten copy of it. And my grandmother's prayer was, Dear Lord, somehow I feel the need to put this in writing. It is only for you and for me. Forgive me, grandmother, because I'm sharing it with a lot of people now. Especially for me to remind me if I weaken. God, this day, February 18th, 1962, I put my life into your hands completely. Having done so, trusting in you completely, I accept whatever you give me from this day forward, the good and what might seem bad or unhappy to me, knowing that your plan for my life is best. I will not fight what comes, always accepting what comes as coming from you, giving thanks to you that my life today and always is in your hands. I am ready to live joyously one day at a time, doing the tasks you set before me. I give to you my children, Lynn, Bruce, Judy, Lewis, and Betsy. May they be completely yours. I give to you my husband, praying that his life ahead will be your will for him. I accept your plan for him, knowing that your way is best for him, for me, for the children. Use me, my Lord, as you will always 
for others. Make me to lose self completely. Thy will be done for me, in me, through me, this day forward. Elizabeth Ann Hawkins. This prayer that was written more than a decade before I was born. I am standing here in large part because of the faithfulness of that woman and her willingness to say yes to Jesus and to leave a legacy in which I could not figure out how this woman had so much love and joy and patience and grace in her life were it not for Jesus. She lived it in a way that was so compelling that even in the midst of my greatest rebellion in a season of life, I was always drawn back to consider her. And ultimately, God used that to bring me to the place where I prayed a similar prayer. God, I, I, I give up. I want my life to be yours. And I haven't always lived that beautifully. But my hope and my prayer is that mine is a legacy that will impact the lives of others. All of us have an opportunity to live into that. I, I believe that even in the face of such tragedy as happened this week, there are stories of the ways that God will use that to transform lives. There are stories of ways that God will use that that will begin to come forth, of ways that we see the sovereignty and the goodness of God even in the face of such pain. What is the legacy that you are working to leave behind? I'm going to close with a prayer from a book that a dear friend gave to me called Every Moment Holy. I'm going to read it. You can close your eyes. You can take on what, whatever posture, uh, posture seems best to you. And then I'll have Ben invite us to stand and close in worship. This prayer is a liturgy for those who weep without knowing why. Let's pray. There's so much lost in this world, O Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken. What is best in this world has been bashed and battered and trodden down. What was meant to be the substance has become the brittle shell haunted by the ghosts of a glory so long crumbled that only its rubble is remembered now. Is it any wonder we should weep sometimes without knowing why? It might be anything, and then again it might be everything. For we feel this. We who are your children feel this empty space where some lost thing should have rested in its perfection. And we pine for those nameless glories, and we pine for all the wasted stories in our world, and we pine for these present wounds. We pine for our children and for their children too, knowing each will have to prove how this universal pain is also personal. We pine for all children born into these days of desolation, whose regal robes were torn to tatters before they were even swaddled in them. Lord, how can we not weep when waking each day in this veil of tears? How can we not feel those pangs when we, wounded by others, so soon learn to wound as well, and in the end, wound even ourselves? We grieve that we cannot heal, and we grieve our half-belief, having made an easy peace with disillusion, aligning ourselves with a self-protective lie that would have us kill our best hopes just to keep our disappointment half-confiding. 
We feel ourselves wounded by what is wretched, foul, and fell, but we are sometimes wounded by the beauty as well. For when it whispers, it whispers of the world that might have been our birthright, now banished, now withdrawn as unreachable to our wounded hearts as ancient seas receding down some endless dark. We weep, O Lord, for those things that though nameless are still lost. We weep for the cost of our rebellions, for the mocking and hollowing of holy things, for the inward curve of our souls, for the evidences of death outworked in every field and tree and blade of grass, crept up in every creature, alert in every longing, infecting all fabrics of life. We weep for the leers our daughters will endure, as if to be made in reflection of your beauty were a fault for which they must pay. We weep for our sons, sabotaged by profiteers who seek to warp their dreams before they even come of age. We weep for all the twisted alchemies of our times that would turn that might have been gold, what might have been gold into crowns of cheap tin and then toss them into refuse bins as if love could ever be a cast off thing one might simply be done with. We weep for the wretched expressions of all things that were first built of goodness and glory but are now their own shadow twins. We have wept so often and we will weep again and yet There is somewhere in our tears a hope still kept. We feel it in this darkness. Like a tiny flame when we are told Jesus also wept. You wept. So moved by the pain of this crushed creation, you, O Lord, heaved with grief of it, drinking the anguish like water and sweating it out of your skin like blood. Is it possible that you, in your sadness over Lazarus, in your grieving for Jerusalem, in your sorrow in the garden, is it possible that you have sanctified our weeping too? For the grief of God is no small thing, and the weeping of God is not without effect. The tears of Jesus preceded a resurrection of the dead. O Spirit of God, is it then possible that our tears might also be a kind of intercession, that we, your children, in our groaning with the sadness of creation, could be joining in some burdened work of coming restoration? Is it possible that when we weep and don't know why, it is because the curse has ranged so far so wide that we weep? at that which breaks your heart because it has also broken ours, sometimes so deeply that we cannot explain our weeping even to ourselves. If that is true, then let such weeping be received, O Lord, as an intercession newly forged of holy sorrow. Then let our tears anoint these broken things and let our grief be as their consecration, a preparation for their promised redemption, our sorrow sealing them for that day when you will take the ache of all creation and turn it inside out like the shedding of an old gardener's glove. O Lord, if it pleases you when your children weep and don't know why, yet use our tears to baptize what you love. God, that is our prayer. That you would give us hearts that are broken over the brokenness of this world and that it would be for us the catalyst that would cause us to examine our own lives and wrestle with the question, what is it that we are living for? What is the legacy that we will leave behind? And I pray that you would burden our hearts and stir our affection for you in such a way 
that it is only you that we seek, that it is your heart that we desire above all things, that is your name that we seek to elevate, not our own. And then in doing so, we would leave a legacy that would transform the hearts and lives of generations to come, that we would leave a legacy that would transform this world, that your inbreaking kingdom would become so evident and so present, God, that the enemy no longer has a place to reside. This is our prayer. This is our hope as your people and your church. And it is in the powerful, redeeming name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Please stand. Let's close and worship together.